0: Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking.
1: From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia.
0: Welcome back to Breaking Banks Asia and our first episode on China's Central Bank Digital Currency, or CBDC. By the end of December 2022, there was about $2 billion US of digital yuan in circulation in China. That's a drop in the ocean for the world's second largest economy. But with examples like the city of Suzhou aiming for $300 million US of digital yuan transactions in 2023, and the People's Bank of China allowing it to be used by securities, the trial rollout is moving ahead, albeit slowly. China's CBDC is set to do many things. It might be the future of regional cross-border trade. It might be spyware. It might be the Chinese answer to m for the under and unbanked. What is clear is after nine years of being trialed, there is no clear timeline to a full launch, so what can it do? This episode, we speak with Richard Turin, an ever-enthusiastic advocate for the retail digital yuan, about what it can do in China. For use outside China, the situation becomes much more speculative. So we've brought in Singapore Management University's Professor Heng Wang to talk about how it might expand as a cross-border reserve trading currency. So let's go to our first guest. Richard Turin is an authority on tech innovation and digital transformation, and also one of the world's leading experts on China's digital yuan. He has lived in Shanghai for 10 years and writes regularly on central bank digital currencies in his newsletter, Cashless, which bears the same name as his latest book, which was published in uh, 1921, 2021. Richard, welcome. I'm very excited to be talking to you about this topic, partly because you're so enthusiastic about it and partly because you're so deeply knowledgeable about it. So welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I love being here. And yes, I'm enthusiastic about this topic because it's not academic for me. I live in China. I have these apps. I I came to a China that used cash and now I live in a China that's gone cashless. So this is real. It's my life.
0: What an experience. So what I'd like to do is kick off with some cliff notes for our audience who might not be so au fait with um, the ins and outs of China's CBDC. China is really truly reaching into these new spaces and showing other countries how it can be done and what can be done. So can you please give us, yeah, the cliff notes on what it is, how did we get here, and why you think it's so amazing, because I know you do.
2: Sure. So I'm going to start with a really weird twist on this, and that is What is it? What isn't it? And that's the most important thing for most people because most people out there are used to Bitcoin, Ethereum, and they're aware of cryptocurrencies because, of course, they're in the news so much. So number one thing to know, China's digital yuan is a central bank-issued digital currency, just like the digital euro will be someday, and someday the digital pound will be. They are not cryptocurrencies. So that's number one. That's okay? the big distinction, thing, isn't it? It's not crypto. Okay. So, you know, you'll see this headline all the time, you know, a central bank cryptocurrency, which is really only partially true. And it reinforces the association with crypto. These central bank digital currencies, including the digital yuan, are not crypto. Now, number two, China's central bank digital currency, the digital yuan, or also you'll hear it called the digital RMB or renminbi, is not spyware. So it's very common right now to hear, oh my god, China is launching this digital currency, and it will be the worst thing in the planet. It will be digital spyware. And what's really ironic is that for Chinese users, it gives us greater anonymity and far greater privacy than the private payment systems of WeChat and Alipay that we all use daily today.
0: So- how does it give you more anonymity?
2: Yeah. Oh, it's it's really easy. Now, I want you to take the following scenario. I go and buy a coffee at my coffee shop, and I use WeChat Pay or Alipay and wait for it. Think about the same transaction with a tap and pay Western credit card or swipe, however it is, or, or Apple or Google Pay, where you put the phone onto the terminal. The question is, what assumption of anonymity do you have? In other words, do they know who you are when you buy the coffee? And the answer is with WeChat Pay and Alipay, of course they know who buys the coffee. With Tap & Pay, Visa, or MasterCard in the West, they know exactly who's buying it. In fact, many people know who bought the coffee. A little better with Apple Pay, not so good with Google Pay, but we'll leave those aside for the moment. Now, take that same transaction and I walk up with the digital yuan wallet and I go make the payment. I have 100% anonymity. The vendor does not know who I am and I leave no data behind.
0: Why has it been set up like that? Why has it been set up to be so data list, Because surely data is what makes the world go around right now.
2: Yes. And that is the number one societal problem, both in tech-advanced China and in tech-advanced West, where we're asking the fundamental question, who has the right to our data and do they have the right to that data? And you have to understand. So when you look at digital yuan, you're looking at a product that was built after WeChat Pay and Alipay, and after and during a time when people asked the fundamental question: Do they have the right to that data? And the People's Bank of China said, "No, your pra- your payment data should be private. You should have the ability to make an anonymous payment, and that is something that here I joke about this with people." again that visa mastercard transaction you have zero right to anonymity and i tell them you have more anonymity using the digital yuan than you do in payment systems in the west and they go oh my god that can't be true it's china but it, it is verifiable and actually true and it is china and the people bank people's bank of china recognizing data privacy it's real uh-huh. and it's and it's
0: Who has access to that data? Because surely it's collected somewhere by someone. Surely it has to be somewhere in order to combat that sort of risk.
2: Right. So the anonymity in payment in China is good up to around 300 U.S. dollars. OK, so what the People's Bank of China said, well, we want you to have cash like privacy up to a limit. Now remember that 300 U.S. dollars may not seem like a lot to somebody in the West, but people in China make less money. The GDP per capita is one third that of the, of the U.S. So, you know, think about a thousand dollars as your an- anonymity level. All right. So, um So you have anonymous payment below that $300. And then above that, your bank has the data. So what is important and critical for everybody, if you're, and this is, look, I want to talk to people because there's a tremendous amount of terror going on about central bank digital currency. The digital yuan system, the proposed digital euro system, the proposed digital a, a Bitcoin or a digital sterling pound system. All of these systems are specially designed so that the, the central bank does not know who is making the payments. The only pay, people that have knowledge of payment, and in China it's above this $300 uh, limit, is your bank. And that should sound a lot like credit cards that are being used today. So ready? Truth bomb number one. When you read a virulently anti-CBDC article, ask yourself the following. Is it written by people who would profit from the sale of cryptocurrency, gold, And the final one, survival bunkers, because these people are thinking that that the central bank digital currency is the end of the world.
0: I'd like to shift gears now, just because of the way 2023 is shaping up as as a year of heavy government debt around the world and scarcer capital for everyone. I mean, just look at Silicon Valley Bank and that collapse there. So... Given the geopolitical and the economic conditions that we're in right now, do you see China holding tight to its current CBDC strategy?
2: Okay, so let's talk speed, because this is really the setup for truth bomb number two. The central bank digital currency in China is failing. Okay, now the rationale is that the uptake has been slow okay, the central bank digital currency in China is in trial phase. It is not widely released. So I live in Shanghai. We were a relatively early trial city for the central bank digital currency. I can use it in only certain stores, and it is not broadly diffused to the population right now and if you look at the trials in these some 21 cities in most cities it's not broadly dispersed it's being trialed for very specific reasons in each one of these 21 cities so what you see is a meticulous rollout of central bank digital currency now understand this what it is being compared with oftentimes is cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency, you build the coin and you say, here's the coin. you figure out how you're going to use it. You, well, build, you, the you build the
0: coin and then you get Elon Musk to tweet about it and um, then sell it really fast.
2: That, that, that's absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much. I love it. you know. So what you see in China is a national digital currency. Which means on that day when it comes, and that's going to be a ways off still, where they say, okay, we're flicking the switch, and now it's available for everyone in China. It has to be just that, available for everyone in China and used on every system in China. So how do you buy a bus ticket? Okay, some bus tickets you buy on the bus, some bus tickets you buy from a ticket station, but all of those different ways that you could possibly buy a bus ticket with a paper yuan now have to be converted over to a digital yuan. Now, perfectly doable, but for, but, but time consuming. So, all right. So, the concept that digital yuan uptake is slow and it is an example of failure you almost don't you it, it's absurd because the digital yuan is in trial it's not supposed to be taking over China with you know with uh like a taking over or like spreading like wildfire displacing WeChat and Alipay who so have do had you think,
0: years is the is the PBOC going to stay the course regardless of any external conditions
2: absolutely so as far as domestic rollout They have an obligation to the people of China so that when they say we have a nationwide digital currency that is a legitimate cash replacement, that it works in all of those places that cash would work. And that's a time consuming process. Now, what certainly will speed up is the international rollout. Clearly, sanctions what many people refer to as weaponization of the dollar, Russia, war, all of these things are playing into a scenario that, oh, forgive me, chip bans, broad bans on the sale of technology to China from the United States. All of these are certainly conspiring to create an environment where if China China definitely had plans for international use of the Yuan prior, a year and a half, two years ago. But if you look at the environment now, certainly those priorities have been sped up or, or re emphasized, no question about it.
0: Just before you were talking about how the rollout of the trial in these various cities has been around different use cases, can you go into a few of these different use cases and the different locations that it's been? That's being trialed.
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, and I'm, I apologize, I can't come up with the names of the city and match That's them. Fine. You That's know. fine. I, I, but um, there are certain cities, and, and I can use Shanghai for this one. Shanghai, in the initial rollout, they did put it into McDonald's and a few of the big stores for trial use, and it did make it onto the subway platforms for vending machines, So, okay, fine. But one of the big things they did in Shanghai was roll out not the normal app, but little cards. And these little credit card-sized cards are what are called non-connected offline wallets. In other words, they are a wallet for digital currency that doesn't require you to be connected to the internet. And that's critical for China's rural population and old people and poor people. Now, what you saw with Shanghai was, sure, relative to WeChat and Alipay, nobody used digital yuan. But what you did see is three or four hospitals, three or four schools, all Targeted to use these cards, and they developed a tremendous amount of knowledge from that. Now, what you're seeing in more recent trials in certain cities are smart contracts. Where? And here's the easiest example for the smart contract. It's very typical, and it's a real problem in China where you would pay for some after-school educational program for your kid, all right. And you pay for 20 lessons and the school goes bankrupt and you've taken two of the lessons and you're out 18 lessons, right? So what we have now is a smart contract. You pay for the 20 lessons, but the money never really leaves. Only when your child checks in on a digital system that confirms that he sits there in the class does the money actually get paid to the to the vendor to the class provider. So that's a, a very trivial, perhaps, but certainly solves a real problem for people in China. An example of a smart contract at work, and that was—I'm pretty sure it was Hangzhou as the city for that, but I'm not 100% sure. So that's. Two examples of smart contracts, uh, uh, offline cards, and some of the other um, venues. I can't remember which city was particularly working on buses and transportation use. So, everybody, every one of the cities looks at this new, bright, shiny thing and says, Well, what are we going to do with it? Let's try it here. And they try to specialize. And eventually, what that city learns becomes part of a common knowledge base and they spread it out to the to the other cities.
0: And really useful to be enabling modes of payment like those cards. It sounds like China is being a bit more inclusive in this new payment system at the very least.
2: China has to be. China has a tremendously large Rural poor population, and it also has an aging population. So, they what China experienced about two years ago. The People's Bank of China put out a special warning. It was summer of two thousand. 21, I believe it was, and they started sending the police out and they said, look, you have to accept cash. We know that everybody is using WeChat and Alipay, but it's a problem for old people. And they started to go out and ensure that businesses still kept a cash box. Now, it's not as big a problem as it's made out to be. The vendors of fruits and vegetables and neighborhoods that have a lot of old poor people, sure, they have cash boxes. They never got rid of them but there was a concerted effort to ensure that everybody would take ca- you know would take cash so china has this large rural population it has a large aging population and central bank digital currency is designed to ensure financial inclusion now you say oh well that's a china problem that's a sub saharan african problem no it's not there's 20 there's 19 something percent of the US population right now that is either unbanked or the term is underbanked and underbanked means that they are paying for check cashing services or other non-bank financial services services which cost a lot so yes it's a emerging market Problem, but it's also a problem for developed economies as well. Even though they don't really like to admit it.
0: So I have a really dumb question for you. How do you get digital yuan?
2: Oh, that's not a dumb question. That's a beautiful question, and that's oh, thank you. The whole, that's the whole point. Okay, so a typical user with a bank account, when you go to your digital yuan app, you say which bank do you use? You put your bank name in it and it says, do you have that app on your phone? And it's like, yes, I do. I have a digital banking app. It connects them and boom, you can transfer the money from your digital bank to your digital wallet in seconds. Now, The real question where it gets interesting is how are we going to deal with the unbanked population? And China still has, despite tremendous advances from WeChat Pay and Alipay on getting people banked, still has, I think, the world's largest unbanked population. Okay, now how do we get them on it? And that's where it becomes interesting because China is going to use the model that came out of Africa and came out of Mpesa, where local shopkeepers um, and mobile telephone company operators, you could go there, give them two or three hundred RMB cash, they'll take your card, put it on a little platform and they'll say 300 RMB goes into the card and you're done. And that's, and, and you, of course, you can make direct payments. Uh, I, you know, if I was the, the son, digitally sophisticated son of a grandparent or, or or parent, and I said, grandma, grandpa, dad, here's 300 car, on your card, I could make that payment from my phone into his, into his card. So it's made easy and you don't, have to have a bank account to get the money on it. ATM machine type devices are being put together. There's lots of ways, so it'll be it'll be made easy.
0: So let's look a little bit more more broadly at other potential use cases. Let's look at global trade. China has ambitions to use its uh, digital one as for cross-border trade. What sort of impact do you ex- expect to see on global trade? in the, the, the closer region to start with, but then more broadly?
2: Sure. Um, let's start out with the controversial thing. Most controversial statement first. I believe that China's digital yuan will become a regional, now, keyword, regional reserve digital currency for Asia. Now, let me explain. If you look at the most advanced CBDC projects in the world, they're all in Asia. So you've got Indonesia, Malaysia, Japan, Korea, all, they're all looking at CBDCs. Um, This is a tremendously large trade trade area, and you're going to see them using the digital yuan in trade. And my bet is that because the digital yuan will be either the strongest or the most used of these digital currencies, you're going to see a lot of trades going using or going through digital yuan simply because China is the largest exporter in the region and because it is sort of the nexus point for trade in the region. But be very, very careful. You have countries like Indonesia who is not an enemy in any way of the United States, being very vocal, saying, we like you US, you're a nice country, but we want to de-dollarize. They are, so Indonesia is already using RMB in trade and will be a good example of a country that will start to use digital yuan. And it's not easy. It's not part of this geopolitical. Do you love China or do you love the United States? Pick one. It's simply, hey, we're in Asia. We do a lot of business with China. We want that business to be conducted in the most efficient way possible. That's it. You know, you can't. How, how can you possibly blame them?
0: Why do you think it's just going to be regional? Because China does a lot of business with uh, a number of African countries. You know, it's big, it has huge trade volumes with many, many countries around the world. So oh, why would it just remain regional, do you think?
2: Oh, okay. So so the answer is there is no question and this is what I write in my book Cashless. I talk specifically about the impact of Uh, the digital yuan on belt and road countries, those that are part of the belt and road or BRI initiative. And no question, huge, huge impact. Um, But that doesn't necessarily qualify the digital yuan as what I call this reserve currency or this digital reserve currency. So I think the impact will be felt the most in the immediate region of Asia, where all the trade is is centered, where so much trade is centered. But, oh, yes, clearly the digital yuan is heading for all Belt and Road countries, those in sub-Sahara Africa and Pakistan, many other places um, in the globe that are active trade partners with China. Um, No question in my mind that that is going to happen. Now, Australia is a really great example because clearly Australia is part of the Five Eyes program. Um, It's clearly tied very closely to the United States. Now, what will be interesting to see if you're doing, if you're a trader and you buy stuff from China and you're a small business, will Australia permit the use and transfer of digital yuan through? Central bank systems, it's not, it's so one thing people have to understand it's not Bitcoin. You see, so Bitcoin can be used without the approval of a local government. Central bank digital currency can't be used in Australia, Kenya, Egypt, you name the country, unless the central bank of that country approves the use. Okay. But will Australia approve the use of digital yuan for the same reasons? That Indonesia most definitely will, which is to save Indonesian traders, people who buy from China, money. Now I think a, I think the political ge-
0: relationship will have to be I take a little more time to be repaired before that happens.
2: I, I agree. And th- this is where the geopolitics comes in, and it will be interesting to watch this for everybody as we go forward in time. But that's the geopolitical world that we live in and the digital UN. And now, now this is truth bomb number three. FinTech is now a geopolitical pawn. It is no, we always, people think of FinTech as, oh, my bank app now looks pretty. Isn't that nice? That's FinTech. I get a new button. Isn't that button nice? No. FinTech is now, I'm sorry to say this, it's now there with nuclear weapons. Who buys the bombs from whom? You know, who wages war? It is there as part of the geopolitical conflict, and that's new to a lot of people.
0: Doesn't that just say that fintech has becoming much closer to um, disrupting banks, to breaking the banks? Because banks did start, remember, bonds at least did start as a uh, creation of war and geopolitics.
2: Uh, look, that that's really... Perfect. And fintech is fundamentally part of it has this pawn in the great geopolitical game now. And it is all part of Breaking Banks.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Richard. i really, really enjoyed this chat today.
2: My pleasure. It's wonderful to be here. And to anybody out there in podcast land who wants to get in touch with me, I am on LinkedIn and Twitter daily. So please reach out to me there.
0: If economically and technically the digital yuan is exciting and could be revolutionary, legally it could change many norms as well. Joining me to discuss the impact on international trade and legal systems is Heng Wang. Now, he is a professor of law at the Yongpong Hao School of Law at Singapore Management University. And before this, he was a co-director of the Sebel Centre at UNSW's Faculty of Law and Justice Now, he's got some very interesting views because his current research focus is China's approach to digitalization and the international economic legal order. So we're looking at things like the Belt and Road Initiative and the Digital Yuan. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me, Hang.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Do you think that China's CBDC will become an international reserve currency that could challenge the US dollar's dominance in trade?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. Uh, probably not uh, in the short term because actually uh, if you look into central bank digital currency, which is a digital version of the fiat currency, and it's uh, technology itself uh, is one thing for deciding whether a currency is international reserve currency, but not everything. So it's not necessarily have a direct link between being a CBDC. That means you will be an internal, sorry, international reserve currency So it depends, for example, on trust and confidence in the currency, or they are uh, are also affected by external factors like geopolitical or geoeconomic dynamics, like sanctions.
0: What sort of conditions would need to be in place for a Chinese CBDC to challenge the US dollar's
1: dominance? Yeah, I think that's actually, at the end of the day, that depends on whether this currency will be widely used, you know, in international markets. And behind that, you know, uh, it has the issue that whether the users uh, in international markets has a trust and confidence in this currency, you know, in the digital version of that, uh, that could involve many issues. For example, whether you're a free convertible currency or the issue that whether you're thinking that, say, you're trusting the, the governance of this currency. Uh, I also have dispute settlements, you know if there's an issue arising out of that cyber uh, security, or you are feel comfortable that you know data, or privacy protection is in good place. So there are many uh, issues, you know, ranging from cyber security to the convertibility. So it's a, it's a quite a lot of factors getting into that. And if we look into the scenario, it's quite different from if history when we look at the U.S. dollar became the international reserve currency, we see a quite different landscape. And obviously, uh, you also have a, a issue like how international. Uh, relations dynamics may play out in that regard because, for example, if there's sanctions, you know, one country may say, okay, we want to reduce the use of U.S. dollar and shift to another currency. This maybe also play a role here as well.
0: Do you think that China has that sort of confidence from countries that might use its uh, a CBDC from it to encourage that sort of trust, you know, around cybersecurity, around governance and so on?
1: Yeah, I think China now is doing, uh, for example, as uh, working with Bank for International Settlements. They have an innovation hub in Hong Kong, and they're working with a a bunch of the, uh, several, I think, another three regulators, including Hong Kong Monetary Authority, uh, the central banks of uh, UAE, as well as Thailand you know, to explore what they call uh, M-Bridge, multiple multiple CBDC bridge projects. So it's kind of the new platform where they're allowing currency one to direct a link with currency uh, two without going through intermediary currencies like US dollars, you know, or you know, pounds. So these are one way they're trying to establish a new platform or, or system. And they have conducted some pilots uh, regarding of the, payments for trade. But they also have many open questions. So, for example, how do you have efficient, you know, a foreign exchange a price uh, discovery? And, you know, how do you address overlapping business hours, as we mentioned, also cybersecurity issues, what are use cases for that? So there are many issues or, or the roadblocks that need to be addressed to show that there are real value to that. So at the end of the day, that involves relationship between the state, the markets, and even the emerging role of the data.
0: Yeah, just touching off on that. In its most recent budget, Hong Kong said it would move ahead with efforts to integrate China's CBDC with their own program. Do you think that would help accelerate cross border test cases?
1: Yeah, I think Hong Kong has been a, a, a very important, you know, very important position regarding the China CBDC. Uh, so, for example, in China's pilots of the CBDCs already have exploring the potential use of the China's uh, digital yuan or ESNY in the what they call the Great Bay Area. So that includes Hong Kong and uh, Guangdong, and also, of course, uh, uh, you know, in different contexts. So and also Hong Kong, you know, as you see in the project, Enbridge project, they have been you know, of the involving BAS, you know, Hong Kong will be uh, a role to link mainland China with the uh, other uh, economies in the, in the region for quite some time. You know, if you look into how China promotes the use of its R&B uh, outside, you know, or, or offshore. So that's uh, that's one uh, possibility and one direction and we would like to see down the track.
0: Given all of this, how do you think China's CBDC is going to impact trade in the next five years? In the region closest to it, but also more broadly as it starts expanding outwards, particularly perhaps towards the Middle East, given Dubai's position as a digital asset hub?
1: Yeah, I think the answer is that it's hard to tell because it, again, depends on how China's CBDC or CBDC more generally has been uh, accepted in the markets by the users. China uh, is uh, promoting or exploring the international use of CBDC, such as, uh, you know, Project Enbridge. But there are still some issues that need to be addressed, like the use cases, you know, they have explored for Enbridge about trade settlements, but how you can add more use cases. And also, you know, CBDC also incur cost. You know, you need infrastructure. You probably not only within China, but also in, in other jurisdictions. For example, for cash, it's easy. I just bring my cash and then I go to another country, then if they accept it, done. You'd... But for CBDC, that means you need, you know, device, you know, infrastructure. So who will maintain the, you know, establish infrastructure? How do we, you know, stand the cyber attack, you know? And those are the cost issues. How do we recover the cost? You know, because if you want to make that cheaper, that don't that means that you probably don't charge too much. But then at the end of the day, you still have to cover the cost for research, development, and so on, and so forth. And also the issue: uh, who will provide the efficient foreign exchange discovery? It's already been one of the issue in the um uh, identify the project aim bridge. And so it's a long term issue. The technology itself cannot change it. Depends on you know the how the the users accept it uh, and also whether there promotion by the, the public sector so for example suggesting or requiring this or you know as a way of payments and also about the issue like international uh, our financial system whether you have other currencies which also have a cbdc version and how they interact play out in that regard
0: let's talk about world trade given we're talking about different countries and they're different they're different use cases what are the global implications of China specifically launching a mature CBDC on world trade?
1: Yeah, I think CBDC is uh, is probably a game changer. Uh, why? Because CBDC is a fiat currency. It's different from cryptocurrency, you know, like bitcoins and others, because you can choose, okay, whether I use or not. But in Chinese context, for example, it's a you know legal tender, so you basically expect it to. Are uh, you expected to use that? And also, I think that the CBDC is different from traditional cash because it carries or generates a lot of data in itself, you know, who use that for what context. And, and there are a lot of implications, not only for uh, regulators or policymakers, but also for businesses, because if you don't have access to that, that means you cannot use data, you know, uh, which is a akin in the digital age. And that involves also to your infrastructure. So they will have a lot of profound implications, you know, in international economic governance. And then for trade itself, that depends on whether technology, you know, is successful. You know, technology has a lot of uncertainties. You you basically make a decision on technology, which you don't really test it, have not tested, you know, for a very long time. And also for regulations, how do you deal with, you know, different countries involving trade? They have different... You know, for example, foreign exchange regulations, or they have own, uh, you know, security considerations. How do deal with those kind of issues? You know, that, so these are a lot of issues that may may uh, we'll have to see how it plays out, you know, how to deal with that.
0: What sort of take-up are you actually seeing now? You know, China is it has these pilots, it's pushing these concepts forward. And obviously, the take-up is going to be the critical thing. It will probably depend on exactly the same reasons as to why companies and countries still use the US dollar, and that is trust. So what sort of interest and what sort of take up and what sort of tentative commitments are you seeing now amongst companies and countries to actually using what is proposed?
1: I think it's actually at a very early stage. I mean, the, for businesses, they face a, a fast-changing landscape. So, for example one thing is about economic cost and two you also have issue about compliance you know so for example if you're a foreign company foreign banks commercial banks your clients ask you to do okay why, why do we use a foreign cbdc and then you are bearing in mind that okay how can i comply with local jurisdictions requirements vis-a-vis international or foreign countries one so they may not be the same they may have you know different directions and certainly the businesses are also trying to shape the landscape. They are not just being accepting that. So, for example, for Swift system, uh, it will be a change. I um, mean, in the regard of you know, the problem is CBDC international use doesn't always mean that you will follow the same path as before. You know, you go to the messaging system, you know, build a new system. So that's the reason why you see that you know um, Swift has a joint venture with China's PBOC-related P- P- in, uh, institution, and also for Mastercard and the Visa. How do you plug into those new systems? And how do you, for international banks, you know, to deal with that? And also international relations also affect that. So I think for businesses, they're they probably uh, more way of, you know, see how they shape the, or contribute to this process, you know, to make sure that we have a transparent a system. We have a system which is interoperable. We have a system that will help to reduce the cost while respecting, you know, the issues like the uh, privacy protection. So it's an area which I need a lot of public-private you know, partnership. A central bank cannot do the job by itself. They need to heavily rely on commercial uh, sectors you know, and individuals because each public, they're also affected by that. So they need to have their voice heard.
0: How do you think a Chinese CBDC will improve or could improve on existing trading settlement? systems.
1: I think that's uh it's likely um that CBDC if they use international trading settlements, uh they will be able to lower their costs at least for settlements itself and also probably be more convenient i mean faster in processing and also it, it end of the, at the end of the day depends on how do you address address the challenges, you know, like the cost issue, like the dispute settlements, if in disputes like fraud, or if they have a insolvency of the commercial institutions in the system. And also how do you harmonize or probably too, too difficult to harmonize, but at least to, uh, you know, recognize different standards, you know, and how to deal with competition issue because they have a have financial stability issues so you bear in mind. That's not only about trade, but affects the design of the system. And and also uh, cyber attack, you know, and how do you address uh, possible unintended effects? Because these are kind of the scenario we haven't seen before, and also dealing uh, ranging from data to sovereignty, you know, because uh, these different states may have their own system for CBDC.
0: Data sovereignty is is going to become a huge thing, and that might be, I imagine, that's going to be potentially a problem with CBDCs. Uh, given the amount of data that would generate?
1: Yeah, I think that data is definitely a crucial issue. How do you govern, you know, how do you govern the data? How do you allow the data to be shared? How do you allow data to be flowed uh, from one country to another? And how do you limit the use of data? How do you have the remedies if there's data leakage? And dat- and how do you ensure data integrity? So there's a lot of issues that being been a very challenging. I think... On one hand, we need a lot of international collaboration because you address cybersecurity issue, you know, and also you need a public-private sector, you need a collaboration, but also different jurisdictions. Another side, these are so sensitive issue and it makes the trust or the collaboration so difficult. And so that makes that a very challenging one if we look into the CBDC landscape.
0: Yeah, and, you know, you could with CBDCs end up with these different... Payment system blocks, I imagine, which would not be useful for world trade.
1: I think in the past, uh, you could see. Okay, arguably, we have a centralized uh, international financial system in the at least in the sense that you know, for example, U.S. dollar plays a pretty crucial role in international systems. Even you know, they are used widely in international transactions. You know. But nowadays, we see that, or at least some countries want to avoid issues with potential sanctions and others for different reasons. And they may have some alternative arrangements for make the payments, you know, in currencies other than U.S. dollars. In this way, they are not really uh, affected by the, the measures. So we like to see that you know they may have currency using in a more limited context and CBdc uh, is one possibility in that regard, but uh, they have a lot of open issues because of the difficulties in using cross-border. And also a very simple example, if it's any cyber attack or even a glitch, in the CBDC technical design, they could have a very heavy blow in the operation trusting trust into that because it's a system, you know, working, you know, at least in domestic context, wider, you know, range of context and may speed out, you know, spread out to the uh, international context and they may have a spillover effects. So any glitch in that may have a lot of impact. That's the reason why CBDC use is not so easy. That's the reason why uh, uh, people need to be very careful when we think about those kind of the different issues of CBDCs.
0: Do you think that international trade law is keeping up with the pace of change in this area? And if not, where does it need to start changing quite quickly?
1: Law sometimes lag behind the innovation because you have you have to go through the, the process of you know legislation, which will be time consuming. It involves m- many more agencies than before, traditionally trade law, only about trade, but obvious for digital currencies, you have those regulators for central banks. You have issues, for example, if I use CBDC for taxation, your tax authorities, data regulators, you know, national security uh, and other agencies involved, banking regulators, financial regulators and so on and so forth. So that increases the difficulties uh, in, in those kind of rulemaking. And certainly international uh, relations makes that more difficult. So they probably need more, uh, what I call that adaptive governance uh, uh, application in these scenarios and to bridge that. It's very demanding. So um, so I think at the end of the day, the like-minded countries may proceed on. We'll see whether they have critical mass.
0: Thank you so much, Heng.
1: Thank you very much. Really enjoyed that.
0: Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.